Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. So, uh, so when you read through the story of the Bible, do you ever picture yourself as one of the characters? I've tried to. I just really struggle with it because of some of the stories that I really like. I have a hard time identifying with some of the characters like David and Goliath. I've always loved that story, especially when I was a kid. But if I'm honest with you, I know my strengths and weaknesses. And if there was a battle to break out, I would not be David who would run onto the battlefield to fight Goliath. I'd be one of the guys standing on the sidelines. Or there's this really weird random story in the Old Testament about one of David's mighty men named Benaniah. And one day it's snowing and he's walking through a snowy field and he sees a lion. So what does he do? Like any sane individual, he chases the lion down into a pit and he kills it. And that's all the Bible tells us about that. It doesn't give us any more detail, but in fa- I'm fascinated by that story. I just know I would not do that. Or maybe a New Testament story. I love the story about Peter when they're on the boat and they're in the middle of the storm. And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks across the water. I know myself, I would not be the one to get out of the boat. I'd let somebody else do that so that if they sank, I'd be like, see, I told you so, because I'd much rather be right than be drowning. I know my strengths and weaknesses. So when I read through the Bible, there's a lot of stories I just have a hard time picturing myself in. But there's one story that I don't have a hard time at all. It's not my favorite story because it's a story I identify with way too much. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Lost and Found, where we've been studying through Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells these three really powerful stories. The first two about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and the last story about a father who has two sons. And last week, we looked at that story about the older son, and maybe that is your story. That younger son who tells his dad, I want my inheritance, and he leaves. He goes to a far country, and he wastes everything that he has on wild living. Then he finds himself in the middle of a famine, right at the time he runs out of money, and he's starving. He finds himself working for a guy while he's feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that even what the pigs are eating looks appealing to him. So he comes to his senses, and he decides to go back home, and he realizes that even his father's servants have food and a place to live. And so he decides he's going to go back, he's going to beg his dad just to make him one of the hired servants. And by the time he gets back, the father sees him, runs to him, greets him, embraces him, kisses him on the cheek, and, and welcomes him back in as a, as a son. As he begins his speech, the father just cuts him off, hollers back at the house, bring the robe, bring the ring, kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate because this son of mine was lost, he's been found. It's a phenomenal story. It's just not one that I personally identify with. The story that I identify with most in the Bible is in Luke 15. It's just the story about the older brother. We don't talk much about the older brother, probably because it would make us a little too uncomfortable when we do. But I identify more with that older brother than I do with the younger brother. Just to kind of tell you my story, I've grown up in church my entire life. My entire life. There's not a Sunday that I can remember that I haven't been in a church building or feeling guilty if I wasn't. I've been in ministry for 18 years, 
So I've literally been paid to go to church. I'm just kidding. I'm not paid to go to church, but you know what I mean. I've been in church as a full-time minister the last 18 years. I went to Bible college in between high school and getting into full-time ministry. I've not had a time where I have felt far from God. My parents are still married to this day. I didn't experience a broken home. I've not experienced any kind of addiction or battling anything like that. And so there have been times where I felt a little guilty about my story, a little ashamed of my story, especially when you meet somebody that's got this powerful conversion story of how God brought them out of the depths of darkness and addiction and brokenness and restored them and made them whole. And I'm like, yeah, I've been to church my whole life. I've never known anything different. But what you notice about Luke 15 is that it's a father who has two sons. He's got the one son that lives this wild, reckless, rebellious life, but he's got another son who's just as far from the father's heart. It's just his sin looks very different. His sin is self-righteousness. In fact, I've joked before that when I was getting ready to be baptized, I had to go tell a few lies, so I actually had some sin to repent of. I'm just kidding. I did not do that, okay? I'm not advocating doing that. I'm just joking. You get my point about what the difference between these two brothers, they're vastly different. Now, have you ever thought about birth order and, and the syndromes that come as a result of birth order, we all have a little bit right and a little bit wrong with us based on just the fact of the number that you were born in in your family. So raise a hand, who's our firstborns in the family? All right, these are the folks that they are always right. They are the most responsible. They have been entrusted with responsibility before anybody else. Their parents were the ones who figured out parenting on them, and they might have some scars to prove it. But there are some perks of being the firstborn. Uh, you literally had everything in your life documented. Your first breath, your first bath, your first steps, the first time you held a spoon for yourself. You had everything documented. The first day you went to school, I mean, it's all there. It's either was taken a still shot on a camera, it was a video camcorder, it was an iPhone, it's on Facebook. There is more stuff than you could ever imagine to prove that you exist on this planet, okay? Now, one of your struggles is, as being the more responsible probably of your sibling, for the most part, is that sometimes you're a little judgmental toward those younger siblings, aren't you? It's okay, you don't have to nod your head. We know the right answer to that. Now, let's talk about those middle children because if I didn't talk about the middle children, then it would just further push this narrative down the road of what it means to be the middle child because if you're the middle child, you're just in the middle. You're kind of overlooked most of the time anyways. If you're a middle child, there might be something within you that feels neglected, something that needs to work a little bit harder to get the approval of the people in your life because you want them to notice you. Because for part of your upbringing, your parents were so busy that you were just the one kind of stuck in the middle. You weren't the first and you weren't the last. You were just there in the middle and you existed. And there's a little bit of stuff to prove that you exist on this planet because while you weren't the first, you were the second. And that was still important. And so there's maybe some pictures and videos. There's not quite as much as maybe your older sibling, and maybe that's something that you're working through with help, and we're all dealing with it, right? Now, let's talk about the babies. Who's a baby here, youngest in your family? You're the best, and we know it. I'm the baby. I'm the best. I tell my parents all the time, if you'd never had me, you'd have never known what it was like to actually have a good child. I didn't receive as much discipline as my older siblings. I think it's because I was smart enough to learn from their mistakes and to go, if that results in that, I don't want to do it. 
I, I was not raised on as strict of a disciplinary plan as my older siblings were, but I think it turned out okay. Now, it's not all fun and games for the baby, okay? There is literally nothing on this earth aside from your social security card to document that you even exist on this planet. There are no pictures and videos to show that you exist. Aside from maybe that family picture to document your age growing up, there's no videos of your first steps because, well, let's be honest, they'd seen it a couple of times. It wasn't that big of a deal anymore. They're like, yeah, kids walking, great. Now we got another one to chase around. They weren't as excited as much as they were terrified that now you were the one who was walking too. There's these narratives about birth orders that ring true in many capacities. What we find in this older brother in Luke 15 is he is a true firstborn. He's the most responsible. And he's good with responsibility. He's a people pleaser. He wants to make his parents proud. But he's also a little judgmental. And he's a little arrogant. Now, in order to understand this story in Luke 15, there's, a key, there's two key verses that you've got to pay attention to. If you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Luke chapter 15, the first two verses, because that's like the legend to the map. In verse 1, it says that there were these tax collectors and sinners who were gathering near to Jesus, and that's not a good thing. We read and we're like, oh, Jesus was friends with the tax collectors and sinners, but in their time... This was Jesus hanging out with the worst of humanity. They would go, why in the world would you hang out with and eat with people like this? These are the types of people that we're trying to raise our kids to stay away from. They were bad influences. They had bad reputations. They weren't just battling sin. They were a class of people that were doing things that were awful. They had very bad reputations, but yet they're attracted to Jesus. And then there's this other crowd of people that's gathering near him. They're called the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law. They're the religious community. They're the people you do want to hang out with, the people you do want to have dinner with. They're the people who read their Bibles every day. They're the people who go to church on a regular basis. They're the people who are trying to live right living, and they're gathering around Jesus. And there was this division between these two groups, between the religious community and the outsiders. And Jesus tells these stories, and especially the third one, because it's much longer than the first two, to let them know that God loves and accepts both groups of people. And where in the past we have really focused on the story of the younger son. What's interesting is that the thrust of the story, aside from talking about this crazy father who we're going to look at next week, the real focus of the story is actually on the older brother, if you pay attention to where the story is headed and where the story meets its climax. And I appreciate David for reading that story to us. He did a wonderful job this morning. This story is about this older brother. This older brother who has his own set of sins. You remember the younger son left the father's house and he went and did his own thing. And he lived a wild, reckless lifestyle. This older brother stayed home. But what we'll notice as we go along is his heart was just as far from his father's heart as his younger brother's. So there's a couple of things I want us to think about that we can take away from this text. And I hope you'll spend some time reading verses 25 through 32 of Luke 15 this week. Especially, especially, listen to me, if you've grown up in church and your story is similar to mine, or if you've been in church for a very long time, maybe you had a younger brother type story, a younger son type story, but you've been doing this church thing for a really long time, 20, 30, 40 years. I really want you to pay attention to this story. 
because his story is my story and it might just be your story. So there's a couple of things I want us to think about this morning. The first one that this older brother story teaches us is that you can be near to God, but not actually know God. Now, this older brother, he was near the father. He never left. He wasn't like his younger brother who just took his inheritance and ran out of town and wasted it. He stayed. He worked for his father his entire life. He was entrusted with the family business, and he stayed the whole time. He was there in the house. And in fact, when we meet the older brother, he's just outside of the house. He's been out working in the field. He had been near the father the entire time. But what's interesting is that even though he was near the father, his heart was not close to the father because his heart was very different from his father's heart. And it just reminds us that we can be the same way. We can be near to God, but not actually know God. And the sin that this older brother struggled with is a sin that's so hard to see in our own lives, but it's easy to see in somebody else's life. Have you ever had a situation where you're interacting with a person and they just acted like they were so much better than you? Maybe it was based on their upbringing. Maybe it was based on their economic level. Maybe it was based on their spiritual level and the way that they viewed themselves spiritually. Whatever the situation was, you just felt like they thought they were better than you. Maybe they even vocalized that to let you know that they were better than you in that area. And maybe talking to them or talking about them, you said something like, they just feel like, they just act like they're better than me, like they're holier than me, like they're just God's gift to creation. If you've ever said something like that, you're describing the sin that the older brother struggled with. It's a sin called self-righteousness. It's a subtle sin. It, It works in the background. It hides behind all of our motives as religious people. And the longer we live near God, the more, the easier it is to begin to struggle with it. Because think about it. The longer you live trying to live right, Did you catch that? The longer you live trying to live right, do you think the enemy can use that to getting you to think that you live not just right, but better than those who are not trying to live right? Could it create some type of moral superiority within you? Again, not something you vocalize because you're better than that but something that maybe subtly runs through your mind as you see certain groups of people and you think, man, I'm thankful I'm not like that. Or man, if they could just get their life right, if they could just do this, what is this? This is what I do. Then they could be right, like me. Again, we don't vocalize it like that, But if you were to be honest, if you were to peel back the layers of your heart, is that something you would have to admit? Because you can be near to God, but not actually know him. You can convince yourself that all the things you do for God is in substitute for actually knowing him. There's a scary verse in Matthew chapter 7, absolutely terrifies me to my core. Matthew 7 verse 21, Jesus says, I'll say to them, uh, I will say to many on that day, who have said, Lord, Lord, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. These are people who it says in Matthew 7, they have cast out demons, they have performed many mighty works in the name of Jesus, they've even prophesied in his name, and they're cast out of his presence because he says they never knew them. And these are people who are confessing the name of Jesus. Let's do a little spiritual resume check. 
If you've ever prophesied, meaning not you stood up to preach, but like you accurately predicted through inspiration something that was going to come and happen to God's people, you accurately predicted it ahead of time and it worked out exactly the way that it was supposed to. If you've ever prophesied, you can raise your hand. If you've ever cast out a demon, you can raise your hand. If you've ever performed any type of work that you could categorize as a mighty work, raise your hand. Me neither. I haven't done any of those things. Don't get me wrong, it'd be pretty awesome. I don't know, I I wouldn't mind like a little demon exorcism gun or something like that. That'd be kind of cool, don't you think? But I've not done any of those. And if they don't make the cut, then what kind of hope do I have? My resume does not stack up near like the, the resume of these people, and they've been cast out of the presence of Jesus. What hope do I have? It's all based on the qualifier. Why did Jesus cast them out of his presence? He says, I never knew you. He didn't say you didn't do enough. He says, I didn't know you. And that just reminds us of the second takeaway of what it, what it means to have the older brother syndrome. It, it's that we can confuse knowledge for intimacy. So yesterday, Haley and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary, and it was the most normal day we have ever had. It was the least romantic wedding anniversary we've ever had because life just took us in opposite directions. We did enjoy a meal together last night. Our 13-year-old was with us, and we really didn't even want to go to dinner, to be honest with you. We really just wanted to get some sleep, but we had to eat because we were hungry. And so we'll celebrate at some point this week, Lord willing, but I'm just saying it was the most normal wedding anniversary. And I tell you that story to let you know I'm not the worst husband in the world. I'm not the best husband in the world, but I'm not the worst husband in the world because not too long, at least I don't think I'm the worst husband in the world. I guess I'm really not the one that should be making that judgment call, am I? Things just come to your mind as you stand in front of people and talk. So not long ago, We were having a conversation and she uttered the question. She said, do you even know me? And I was like, oh goodness, uh, we've been married. You know, at this point we've been married 17 years, or excuse me, 16 years. And so I thought, yeah, I do. And it wasn't like a hateful question. It was like a joking question. Like, do you even know me? It was a question about, there was something that she liked that I didn't think she did, but she did. And she was like, yes, I like that. And then she said, do you even know me? Jokingly, at least I think it was, it was, it was joking, okay? But it was a good question, do you even know me? Because I know a lot about her. I can tell you her social security number. I'm not going to tell you that, but I could. I could tell you the bank account number. I could tell you her birth date. I could tell you where she grew up. I could tell you the school she went to. If I thought long and hard, I could probably even tell you her favorite teacher if the name would come to my mind, because I do kind of remember. I could tell you the places that she's worked. I could tell you what she's interested in and what she's not interested in, mostly, (laughs) hopefully, (laughs) although I might get a few wrong. I know a lot about her. What do you call somebody who knows a lot about a person but doesn't actually know that person? Knows everything about them, knows all their movements, knows everywhere they go, knows everything they like, knows everything about them but doesn't actually know that person. What do you call that? A stalker. Yeah, some of you said it. A stalker. Here's my challenge to us. My fear, my fear is that we have a lot of stalkers of Jesus. We have a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't use the term a lot. Maybe I should use the the word some, because I don't know what the number is. Only God knows your heart. But is it possible that you could confuse knowledge with intimacy? Yes. 
One of the things that our enemy, Satan himself, will do is to get you to think that the amount of knowledge that you have about Jesus is a substitute for actually knowing Jesus. And think about it. We love knowledge. In our fellowship, as a body of believers, we love knowledge. We have two times a week at minimum that we engage in Bible study as a church family. We have a sermon every Sunday morning and a couple of Sunday nights a month. There's podcasts you can listen to. There's videos, countless videos on YouTube, articles on the internet. You can read and consume it all. You can grow in more knowledge you could ever imagine. But knowledge is not an indicator of intimacy. It can help you toward intimacy, but it's not a direct correlator. There's this really interesting verse in Psalm 139, in verse 1. It's a psalm that David writes, and he says, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know me, K-N-O-W. It's more than just you have a knowledge of me. The Hebrew word is a really interesting Hebrew word. It's a word, yada. Any Seinfeld fans, you don't have to raise your hand in case you're worried about being judged for liking Seinfeld. I'm not going to judge you. There's a, you remember the phrase in Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada? It's the same word. It's where the word comes from, yada, yada. It's a fascinating Hebrew word. It means to know on a deep, intimate level. It's a word that's got a lot of layers and a lot of depth to it. Because in Psalm 139, it just means that God knows David. He knows him deeply. But in Genesis chapter 4, it's used in a place where it talks about Adam and Eve knowing one another and then conceiving to give birth to a son, Seth. It has a very different connotation in Genesis 4 verse 1 than it does in Psalm 139 verse 1. But the idea is of a deep, intimate connection. And David said, God, you yadami, you know me deeply and intimately. And the invitation there is for us to have this deep, intimate connection with God, not just to know a lot about him, but to deeply know him and to know his heart. And that was the problem with the older brother. He knew about his father, but he didn't know his father's heart because his father's reaction was very different than what the son thought he should do. The older brother thought he should cast out this younger son. He's wasted. He gave up his shot. Kick him to the curb, dad. No more chances for him. That wasn't just his second chance. We would have to assume that this brother's moment of indiscretion was not a one-time act. This is a kid who his entire life was a troublemaker. The brother's saying he's had his opportunities. Cast him away. It's just me and you now. He didn't know his father's heart. He didn't know that his father was not only the father of second chances, but of thousandth chances. He will always welcome his children back home. You can know God, but not actually know him deeply. And thirdly, from this older brother, what we see is that you can have service and obedience, but without any kind of joy. For this older brother, he said something really interesting. He said, look, Father, all these years I have served you. All these years I have served you. And not one time did you give me a fattened goat to celebrate with my friends. Do you hear the arrogance in his language? Look at what all I've done for you. But what you hear underneath it is that the, the number of days he served his father produced no kind of joy within his heart. And it produces two kinds of attitudes. The first one is, God, you owe me. 
God, look at all that I've done for you. God, you owe me. God, I have been to church every Sunday and every Wednesday. I've not missed it. I was there on Mother's Day. I was there on Father's Day. I was there on Christmas, Easter, and every Sunday in between. I was even a Sunday night attender. I was a Wednesday night attender. I put money in the, in the plate every week. I even showed up at the extra events. God, look at what all I have done. It's a you owe me kind of attitude. And then there's another attitude that can develop of the attitude of, I hope I do enough good things so that God doesn't send me to the bad place. If I can just show up enough, if I can just do enough, if I can give enough, if I can just do enough right things, then maybe God will look on me with favor and he won't send me to the bad place. And both attitudes are wrong because neither are the heart of the Father. If your attitude is, I have to, meaning you woke up and you uttered or thought something to the effect of, I have to go to church today. I have to do this this week. I have to give. I have to sing. I have to come to the service day next Saturday. Shameless plug. I hope you'll be here. If that's your attitude, you've missed God's heart. God gave us rules and boundaries to invite us into his heart, not to create a burden. I'm going to assume your family's like ours, that you have rules, you have chores, you have expectations. And one of the reasons why you have that is to create safe boundaries for your children or grandchildren so that they can understand your heart, they can live safely and grow up with a lot of happiness and a lot of joy, understanding where the lines are that they don't need to cross. I'm assuming you don't have rules in your family so that you can discipline your children because you know what everybody loves to do. Everybody loves to get home and to go, let me tell you, your kids have been bad today and you're like, yes, I get to whip somebody today. I've been waiting all day to tear apart a, a child's rear end. I, you know, I don't know if you're a spanker or not. Nobody does that. Now, again, I was the baby of the family. I never got the speech, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. My, my dad had figured that out long ago. It hurt me way more than it hurt him. But we don't have rules so that we can discipline our children, so that we can ground them, so that we can just be an oppressive burden over them. And you don't either as a parent, do you? And as a kid, you probably feel that way. Oh, my parents just want to burden me and wear me down and keep me from having so much fun. You can think that and Lord willing, one day God's going to make you a parent, make you eat everything you said when you were a kid of all the things you would never do. It's to invite you into your parent's heart and God's rules. And 1 John says his commands are not burdensome. They're to invite us into his heart so that we can understand who we have as a father, so that we can obey him and serve him with joy, so that we can replace have to with I get to. Man, I, I get to sing today. Whether it sounds good or not, it doesn't make a difference. God loves to hear his children sing. I can't spend time with my church family in prayer, study, learning about this amazing, scandalous, prodigal God we're going to talk more about next week. I get to sacrificially give in some capacity. I get to be a part of a family of faith that shares its burdens walks with one another through life, enjoys being together, gathers to try to make an impact in our community. It's an I get to, not an I have to. Because if you're feeling the burden, it might just be because you're battling the older brother syndrome. So a couple things quickly I want to challenge you to do if that's where your heart is today. 
First off, I hope you'll recognize the sin of self-righteousness. If you'll look deep within and go, is that really my motivation? Have I lost my joy in serving? Have I convinced myself that what I know about God is the same as actually knowing God? Have I convinced myself that just because I show up at this place once a week or a couple of times a week that I've convinced myself that I'm actually near to the heart of God? You got to recognize it. It's uncomfortable. It's why we don't like talking about this story. It's much more encouraging to deal with the younger son, isn't it, rather than to deal with the sin of the older brother. But his sin is just as destructive as his little brother's rebellion. It's just not near as visible. So I want to challenge you, if that's you, to recognize it. As you recognize it, I want to challenge you to repent of it because that's what God calls us to do when sin is in our life. To fall on our knees, to humble ourselves, and to say, God, I, I am the older brother. I've been self-righteous. I've been looking down on other people. I've responded with judgment instead of grace, with skepticism instead of welcoming and openness. Repent of it. Confess it before God and before your brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, you got to receive. Yeah, they all start with R. Recognize, repent, receive. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. It's just what preachers do. You got to receive God's goodness. The father told his oldest son, son, everything I have is yours. He's inviting him to receive the goodness of God. Not to study more, not to do more, to be, to be present with God, to rest in his goodness over your life. It's what he's inviting you to do, to receive his grace, maybe in a way that you never have. What's fascinating about Luke 15 is how the story ends. It just ends. The father's out there pleading with his oldest son to come in and join the party. And then the story stops. You ever watched a movie like that? It leaves you on a cliffhanger and you're like, what happened? It's because the author wants you to picture what happened and wants you to picture yourself. And so the question is, does the older brother ever go in the house and celebrate with the rest of the family? It's left that way because it's a question for me and it's a question for you. If you battle the older brother syndrome, will you come into the house? Will you receive God's goodness? Will you recognize this sin in your life and repent of it and come celebrate with the family of God? as he welcomes not only his children who have traveled far from him back home, but he even welcomes his children who have been very near this entire time, but their hearts have drifted from him, and he welcomes them back home. And so, if God is calling you to do anything this morning, whether it's to return back to him, to be baptized into Christ, to confess sin, to repent of that in your life, whatever we can do, please let us know as we stand and sing.